This podcast is a presentation of Faith Assembly of God, where our mission is to connect people with Christ and to experience life. Get more information online at faithishere.org to join us each Sunday morning at 9 or 11 a.m. Thank you for making this podcast a part of your week.
going to continue to look at marriage and the family and how all that works together. And it's complicated stuff, but God has the answer in the Word of God. Let's stand together for God's Word today. Genesis 2 and verse number 18. The Lord God said, it's not good. Everyone say, not good. That man should be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, was not found a helper comparable to him. The Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam and he slept and he took one of his ribs and he closed up the flesh in its place. Then with the rib, the Lord God had taken from the man, he made a woman. He brought her to the man and Adam said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father, mother, and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Father, we thank you for your word today. God, I thank you for every couple represented here, every person here today, every family member, Lord Jesus. God, as we look at your word, I pray that you will teach us how that we can have better marriages, better homes, better families. God, we need your help today so desperately. So teach us through your word. We'll give you the praise and glory for what you are going to do. We ask all this in your mighty name. Amen and amen. God bless you. You may be seated. Man was out golfing one day and he hit his ball and it landed on top of an ant pile. And wanted to follow all the rules. He wasn't about to touch his ball or move his ball. And so he took out his seven iron out of the bag. He walked over and proceeded to try to hit that ball. And he took a swing and he wound up and he swung and went right underneath the ball. Ants were flying everywhere. There was destruction everywhere. There was carnage everywhere. Dead ants all around. But not deterred, he took his club, he got ready to swing again. He says, I'm going to hit the ball this time. And he swung again, and this time went once again underneath the ball, and ants were flying in every direction you could imagine. They were wounded, they were killed, there were dead ants lying everywhere. Did it again the third time, still no success. The ball just kind of settled back at the very same spot. More ants were killed and wounded. The fourth time, he did it one more time, hit underneath the ball. Ball settled right down in the very same place. Finally, one ant spoke to uh, those who were remaining and says, if we don't get on the ball, we're all going to die. <laughs> Today in America, marriages are in trouble. There are a lot of lifeless marriages all around. Marriages are breaking up. Homes are divided. Where couples stay together, often they are in a lifeless marriage. They occupy the same house, but they are going in different directions. They are separating, divorcing. They're hurting. They're broken. There's a lot of anger in the homes today. And, and as you look at it, it seems like there might not be any resolution. It may seem like your marriage is impossible. Your relationship is impossible. It is too far gone. And I will tell you, if we don't get on the ball and follow the principles of God's word, our marriages are going to be in trouble. 
And so this morning and next week and for the next few weeks, I want to go back to the Word of God and I want to see what God's Word teaches us about marriage and the family and keeping it together and following God's principles for our household. You see, what's happened is in America, we've tried plan A and plan A isn't working. Let me tell you how plan A goes. It goes something like this. The man has heard the rumor that he's the head of the house. He has no real idea what that means, but he comes home one day and he pronounces to those who are in the house, hey, I'm the head. The only trouble is his wife didn't vote for him. Nobody else in the family really buys it. And so confusion begins to set in. And once again, he says, I'm the head, aren't I? Can I at least be the head of the house from 6.30 to 8? If I could just handle that little part, if I could be the head during that time. And, and finally, the man in exasperation, he gives up and retreats from the home. And he goes to his garage, goes to work. He does his thing where he knows he's in control. And at some point along the way, he makes a deal with his wife. I'll deposit and you withdraw. And the wife's very happy with that arrangement. Ah, that's great. I like that. That works fine for me. You deposit, I'll withdraw. In fact, she feels she can do a better job running the house anyway. It's her domain. It's her place of rule. And now the husband further resents her taking over. He senses he's beginning to lose control. But the problem is he's not leading anyway. The wife has had to come in and step in the gap. He resents not being informed with her decisions. And so all of a sudden he looks at the bills. He sees a lot more is going out than he's bringing in. And he says, why didn't you pick up the phone and call me? You could have at least ask me first. All I am is a paycheck to you. And on and on it goes. And so the man further withdraws. He further runs back into his business. Uh, He runs into his garage. Uh, He runs to his sports uh, or even at times into another woman's arms. Because he feels he's not respected. The wife reasons from her pride. She's also heard a rumor. The rumor she's heard is I'm a helpmeet or a helpmate. And she interprets that to mean doormat. And she says, I'm not a doormat. I'm not to be trampled on. In fact, where were you when I needed you? And so she feels a sense of loneliness, an emotional detachment, and she herself further withdraws. And plan A's not working. And the man's going his way and he's doing his own thing. Uh, and his wife is feeling isolated uh, and emotionally hurting uh, and broken. And she's going her way. And all the time you got kids growing up in the house. Now what happens when you have this plan A scenario? You have kids who basically are insecure. Let me tell you, a child's security is not from the parent's love for that child. A child's security comes from the parent's love for each other. You need to get that. You need to understand that. Your child's security will be most strongly based 
a mom and dad's love for each other, not even so much the love you show them. And what happens is when this child is insecure, he seeks out attention in all the wrong places, uh, and so he catches every disease of society. Now, last week, I told you that God has a higher purpose for your marriage. And until you begin to understand that purpose and your function in marriage, uh, you will have a plan A type of marriage. Uh, But let me tell you what God's purposes are. God says he made man in his image. Uh, Male and female created he them. Uh, Our first and number one priority is to reflect the image of God. Wherever we go, can God be seen in our marriage? Uh, Am I reflecting his glory and am I reflecting his image? Second thing, they were called to reproduce godly children, not just have kids. Uh, Anybody can have kids. Uh, But Malachi says we're to reproduce godly offspring. So it will sustain uh, the Christian testimony from one generation to the next. Number three, the result of that spiritual unity and spiritual oneness. When two come together, not only just physically, but in spiritual unity and spiritual agreement, they can have dominion. And he says, take dominion over the earth, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over every creeping thing. I give you dominion. And what can happen in a marriage, uh, there can be a powerful coming together and you can take dominion as a husband and wife over every force of darkness. Uh, And when you begin to understand God's divine purpose for your marriage, then you'll leave that plan A type of of, of just vicious cycle of around and round and round, which some of you are on today, and move into what God really intended a Christian biblical marriage to look like. And I want to tell you, when it's in Christ Jesus, when the Lord is number one, when you're seeking his kingdom first, it can be a dynamic, exciting relationship, marriage, and home and family. That's what God wants for you. Now this morning... I want to look at marriage as kind of like a voyage on the sea, the sea of life. You know, if you've been out on the ocean, sometimes you can get out on that ocean and man, the the, the waters are calm and and everything's going smooth uh, and you are cruising right along the top of that water and you're feeling good. Uh, But how many have been out in the water when it gets rough and gets choppy and all of a sudden that boat's going up and down and you're getting sick to your stomach and you're getting nauseated uh, because you're out on the very rough seas, Uh, and the, and the waters will change, and marriage can kind of be like that. Sometimes your marriage is smooth sailing, uh, but sometimes you have those disagreements, uh, those arguments, those frustrations that come your way, uh, the, those adjustments that you're having difficulty uh, making in life and in marriage, and sometimes it can be very rough and very choppy. Now, what I want to do is take you through several ports and show you the different stages and how we make adjustments. And I'm going to tell you, this morning's teaching is going to be very, very practical. So take your outline out, be ready to take notes, and follow along with me. How many have ever been on a cruise ship? Let me see your hand. I, I like cruising, man. It's just about the it's about the uh, cheapest vacation you can take. They give you all your food. Believe me, I ate enough food in one day to pay for that entire cruise. And uh, that you have, they have activities going on. And then they have what they call as ports of call. And so if you're going through the Caribbean, they'll stop at different islands along the way. And you get out and you snorkel or scuba dive or do whatever and uh, have a great time. And so, so, so cruising is kind of neat. Well, th- we're going to take you through five different ports of call on this cruise ship called marriage. I want you to jot these down. And at some place, you're going to see yourself at one of these ports. 
because we're going to hit the port of life you're in right now, and I want to give you practical insight from God's Word how we make it in each different port of call. With me? All right, number one, there is that adjustment port. Write that down, the adjustment port. That's where you're getting to know each other. That's that very first port of call. It's when you are shifting from being single to married life. And that port usually is about two to five years span of time, length of time. Now, when you're single, guys and girls, listen to me, you got incredible freedom. Man, you can go shopping when you want to. Ladies, you can, uh, men aren't doing that, but ladies, you can go shopping when you don't want to. You can spend your money how you want to, your time how you want to. No one's telling you what to do. And then all of a sudden, you get married. And, 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 and you're making these different uh, purchases together and you're filling up your social calendar and you're making those decisions as two become one and so two of you are working on those decisions together and all of a sudden the freedom isn't quite what it once was when you were single that that marriage port now in order to to make this first adjustment port there's got to be major flexibility in fact i will tell you if you are a rigid person marriage will not work well for you you got to learn how to be flexible because there's now two of you working together in one accord. Uh, and it requires a couple of things. First of all, it requires bending. Bending. It's that ability to, to negotiate and remain flexible when resolving your differences. Uh, it's bending. Uh, you each bend, you each move, you each work together. What so often happens, though, in these early years of marriage is what we call power struggles who's in charge who's in control and when that is going on it will kill a marriage the typical areas especially in the early days the typical power struggle areas will be in the areas of money and finances and sexual adjustments now now the thing is these are not really the issues the real issue is about Who's in control? Who's in charge? You see, in marriage, when one person wins, you both lose. It's not about winning. It's not about having your way. It's about oneness. It's about a partnership. It's about togetherness. It is not a dictatorship. It's about cooperation, not competition. The adjustment port. Bending, you've got to bend, you've got to be flexible. The other word is blending. And so what you have is not only you got to get along with your new wife or your new husband, uh, you got to get along with their families. And that fun. And blending, and so it is a blending of families literally coming together. And so what happens is she comes from her family background, you got your family background, you both think they're perfect. And then it comes together and you've got to form your own unique family identity. Uh, and what will happen is you'll usually have some characteristics of both, uh, but it can often create conflict where there's not a blending going on. So there's bending and blending. Uh, the idea is to come to oneness, spiritual oneness, uh, oneness in body, oneness in soul, oneness in spirit. And for you to achieve oneness in your marriage, like I talked about last week, uh, there's got to be both bending and blending. Now, during this adjustment period, 
there's some unrealistic myths that very quickly come to the surface. All of a sudden you figure out this isn't what I bargained for. This isn't what I thought it was going to be like. Let me give you four of those myths. Number one, this is going to be the world of my dreams. It's a myth. You're setting yourself up for a honeymoon hangover. It's the difference between your expectations as you enter marriage uh, and the reality you discover after you're married. Uh, There can be a great difference there. Dating couples have this rose-colored fantasy idea of what marriage is going to be like, about what the wedding is going to be like. They get so excited about planning their wedding and and all the details that go into it, the dress and the decorations and all that's going to happen. And all of a sudden they get married and they realize that thing lasted an hour and now I'm stuck. Here I am. After marriage, you move into the problem field realities of making life work together to becoming one. Uh, And so unlike this fantasy world where you can just wish your problems away, all of a sudden you realize the problems are very real. They can't be wished away like a fantasy. And you've got to skillfully solve those problems together. Myth. Here's another myth about marriage. That marriage will somehow make me happy. Marriage was never intended by God to make you happy. Happiness is too important to rest in anyone else's hands but yours and God's. Happiness is too important to rest in anyone else's hands but yours and God's. In fact, let me take it a step further. Marriage intensifies the state you are already in. So if you're a reasonably mature person and you're a relatively happy person and you marry somebody who's relatively mature and relatively happy as well, then what's going to happen is your marriage is going to be happier, going to be more exciting, happier, more happy. But however, if one's a grump, one's negative, one's depressed, One's moody. Marriage is only going to make it worse. You get moodier, depressed. Marriage alone will not make anyone happy. What will make you happy? I'll tell you what will make you happy. We were created by God for fellowship with him. And we're fulfilling the purpose that God made us and God created us. That's the key, my friends, to joy. It is fulfilling the purpose for which God made us. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Look, if you would, at verse number 19. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? You're bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. In other words, you were designed to be a temple to house God's spirit. And until God's spirit comes and lives inside of you, uh, you will never find that joy in life. Because you're not fulfilling the purpose for which God made you. You were made to be a habitation for God's spirit. 
And when you discover that, when you begin to understand the, the, the kingdom of God, he says in Romans 14, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. It's not what you do or don't do. It's not what you eat or don't eat. Uh, the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The only happiness can be found in that right relationship with Christ. Number three, here's a myth. This is an interesting one. The person I dated is not the same person I married. Or the person I dated is the same person I'm marrying. That's the myth. And then you wake up and go, ah! The story of, uh, uh, one story in the Bible just, just cracks me up. I mean, every time I read it, it's so funny. The humor's built right into it. It's Jacob and Rachel and Leah. And uh, Jacob, poor Jacob, he could not catch a break. He was so deceptive. God's catching up with him, and God's going to teach him some lessons. And he worked seven years to marry this beautiful, gorgeous lady by the name of Rachel. The Bible says she was shapely and beautiful. And so he's waited seven years. He has worked so hard, and uh, he... It's dark, it's night, the party's over. He goes to bed with her in the tent. They don't have lights going on. They don't have all this going on. And so he wakes up the next morning, the sun comes up and he rolls over to see Leah's there and he goes, ah! Leah's the ugly daughter. And he says, what have I done? And and he's screaming outside his tent. And, of course, I I preached on this last year. And you can imagine how bad Leah must have felt. And and all these dynamics are going on. Well, that's what happens in marriage. You marry somebody. Oh, man, you dated the whole time. He opened the door for you. He was so nice to you. He just read poems to you. He did everything he could. I mean, he was just Mr. Romantic. I mean, he wants to marry you. And all of a sudden you wake up. Ah! He's different. He's got a temper. He's got some nasty habits. He's a goofball. He can't, can't earn any money. He's just, and all of a sudden you discover that the person you marry is not the same one you dated. We're all on their best behavior when we date. We have this idealized view of the person we're married because we're so in love. Listen, they are filled with flaws and faults and problems because you're human. Understanding that can spare you unnecessary disappointments. You see, marriage not only brings out the best in the mate, but marriage also can bring out and reveal the worst in your mate. Because something happens when we're married, we let our guards down uh, around our spouse. You're becoming one, and so everything's known, and all of a sudden, all the problems and and faults and flaws rise to the surface. The biggest surprises are, are what are their personal habits like? How do they manage stress? How do they handle anger? How do they handle interpersonal conflict? All those things can rise to the surface after marriage. Adjustment. This adjustment port's tricky. Number four. If my mate really loves me, they would automatically know what to do or how to show me love. I mean, I know we have an expectation that, hey, the, the woman's thinking, you know what? He really does love me. I know he loves me. We got married. I'm waiting for him to show it. And the guys, the Bible says guys are as dumb as oxes, man. They don't know what to do. They're clueless. I mean, they don't, they don't know 
And, and, and what happens is, here's, here's how we learn how to show love. You learn how to express love from your mom and dad. So what happens is the way your mom and dad show love to each other is the kind of way you're going to show love to your mate. And so that's what you learn. Now, if you come from two family backgrounds uh, that are fairly similar in nature, well, listen, when you marry somebody, you've got to consider their background, their families, what they've been through and all that kind of stuff. And so if you've got family backgrounds that are relatively similar in nature, then the adjustments are easier. But if you've got a, a, a guy who comes from a dysfunctional family, a dysfunctional marriage that he grew up under, he's not going to know how to show love. He never saw it modeled from his dad to his mother. Well, his dad expressed love as he knocked his wife around serious stuff it'll mess you up it'll mess you up the greater the difference in family experiences the greater the unmet expectations will be and all this surfaces in these first five years of marriage the partner's love just because your partner loves you doesn't make he or she a mind reader so you've got to show them how you want love expressed how you want affection expressed, how you're going to handle your disagreements, how you're going to work those things out together. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. Let me give you a verse for this. 1 Peter chapter 3. It's addressed to men, I think, probably because women tend to be more of mysteries. But uh, 1 Peter 3 and 7. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding. He's talking about the marriage. He said, your wife's complicated. Try to understand them. Try to understand what they want, how to meet their needs, how to, how, how, to, how to show love to them, how to work through your problems together, what makes them tick. Men, learn everything you can about that spouse. Giving honor to the wife is the weaker vessel and being heirs together with the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. And so these first five years, these are critical. That's why if you can get through that first five-year period of time, you, man, you're on, you're on the home, you're, you're doing good. You're moving through, and you're going to make it, hopefully. Number two, childbearing port. Some of you are there. Some of that's where you're at in your life. You're starting to have children. Little kids are coming into the house. And it usually happens in your middle 20s, all the way up to the early 30s, somewhere along in there. Genesis 1 and 28. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. This was a part of God's commission to Eve and Adam. He said, you guys be fruitful and multiply and have children. This is a part of your responsibility as parents to produce a godly generation to follow you. Now, parenting is a shared experience. In these early years, it's just not mama's duty. Caring for infants and toddlers brings an incredible physical strain on the marriage. Uh, but when the father shares in the responsibility, all of a sudden, this wife will love you so much more. Because you're right beside her, helping her every step of the way. And it intensifies the father's bond with his children as well. Okay. Everybody wins when two cooperate together in taking care of those children. Turn to Ephesians chapter 6. I want to show you a scripture. You'll see this again, but let me show it to you today. Ephesians 6 and verse 4. And you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. 
Who does he tell to bring up children in the training and admonition of the Lord? Listen, man, that's part of your responsibility as the father, as the head of the house. Bring them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Men, don't miss that incredible golden opportunity to be with your children. Children's early ideas of God will grow out of their relationship with their dad. So read Bible stories to them, pray with them, play with them, love them. Give them plenty of affection. Don't discipline them in anger. They don't discipline them. Just don't do it in anger or wrath. And be involved as their world as you can because you want to give them a wholesome picture of their heavenly father. Good stuff. Number three, then you go to the child rearing porch. And, and, and these, these, are, these, are, these are marvelous times. These are wonderful times when your kids are growing up in the house. These are kind of the memory-building years that you will experience. It's when you go on family vacations together. It's when you get involved in their school activities and you go watch their school games, their school plays or musicals, whatever. It's when you involve the family in church events and you're, and you're involved in their growing up. They're, it's the family holidays. It's all that kind of stuff going on. Now, I want to make a statement. Listen to me. Get this. They won't care that you work 60 hours a week to please your boss. But they'll remember if you were at their soccer games or baseball games or football games. I want to encourage you. Do your best to live on less than two full-time incomes. I'm not saying this to bring guilt on people. I just want to encourage you. Don't, don't be so consumed with money and things and getting stuff. Your kids need you. They don't need your toys and your trinkets and your stuff. During this time period in your life, you need to learn to balance discipline. How do you balance godly discipline? You give them a lot of approval and affection when they're doing well, but you punish them for unwanted behavior in order for their own safety and their own good. You can't avoid discipline. You can't avoid godly discipline. It's a part of raising up your children. Too much of it will suppress them and provoke them to anger. Too little of it will give them no restraints whatsoever and they will feel insecure and unloved and unwanted and they'll be doing their own thing. There's got to be a proper balance. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Look at verse number 9. 9 to 11. Furthermore, we had human fathers who corrected us. And we paid them respect. You don't correct them. No respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjecting the Father's spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But he for our profit. We may be partakers of holy, holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present but painful. love the response of the kid who says, or the father says, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. You want to cry out as a kid, well, spare yourself the pain, dad. Don't do it. 
No, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Number four, there are the child launching ports. Some of you are right there. Their kids are getting bigger. They're growing up. They're, they're adults in body. They're not there in mind. They think they're there in mind. They think they know a whole lot more than you do. But they're not. This can be an emotionally challenging time because the kids are as large as you are, so you no longer can rule by intimidation. You're looking up at them. And the world's frightening because you've got all this possibility of sexual misconduct going on in our schools and among our teenagers today, and you're worried about substance abuse and all those things kind of come into play, and it can be a terrifying time when you're raising teenagers. The key is to trust your children, but supervise them at the same time. A tough balance to achieve. During the Cold War in the mid-20th century, there was this Soviet-American nuclear warfare that was threatening civilization. So we had that time called the Cold War. All the all Cold War, all the spying was going on, and the Russians are building up their nuclear arms. Uh, we're building up our nuclear arms. Uh, we're spying on each other with the with the possibility that any time you put your finger on the on the button, and poof, it all goes up. And so the military and political leaders developed the slogan: "Trust but verify." Trust, but verify. That's kind of the way it is with our teenagers. Trust your children to live that Christian life you've modeled before them as they were growing up. But also verify. Know who their friends are. And know their friends' parents. And know where they're going. And know when they're going. And when they'll be back. Trust and verify. Define the issues of life that are majors and those things that are minors in life of your teenager and don't major on the minors and minor on the majors. Let me give you some of the majors. Jot this down, guys. What are the majors? Who are their friends? Critical. Number two, where are they going? And I would say a real strong major is begin to give them a sense of their vocational direction. Work with them on what they're going to be doing for the rest of their life. If you've modeled a Christian life and they've seen how it brings joy and happiness to your life, uh, joy and peace to your life and to your marriage, uh, then they will think twice before they throw all that away. That child rearing port. And then number five is that empty nest port. Some of you are right there right now. That's where you're at. That's the port you're docked in right now. It's the empty nest port, although I will tell you that is often a misnomer because no sooner are the children out of the way than all of a sudden right in the back door comes all the grandkids. And it's kind of fun. That's a neat time in life. That's an exciting time in life, and, and uh, it's neat. There, there was a bumper sticker that said this, if I'd known grandchildren were so much fun, I'd have had them first. I can say a big amen to that. All your grandparents know what I'm talking about. And what happens is in this last part of your life together, 
Your lives are become so blended, you can communicate without ever saying a word. You don't say a thing. You can read each other's mind. You've gotten there. You, you, don't, you don't have to assume. You don't have to guess anymore. All those adjustments are done and over, and you can read each other's mind. You mean without saying a word. Rarely do you lose any sleep over disagreements. You realize it's no good arguing anyway. You know what each other thinks and where it's going and how it's going to end up. So you just don't argue anymore. You don't fight anymore. It just It stops. It's kind of neat. When you're apart, you feel like a part of you is missing in your life because your lives are so uniquely one. And if you've been a good steward of your money, then you can begin to help your adult children, maybe with the purchase of their first house or, or help them along the way and help them get started in life. And, and when you retire, you have more time with your grandchildren and more time to give back to your church and to the community because now you're no longer working and so you can just give your life back. That's an exciting, exciting time. And as you approach the sunset of your life, it seems like only yesterday you began your journey together now how do we what's the key here it's keeping the right priorities in your life listen to me every one of you it all starts with god it all starts with your relationship with the lord jesus christ it begins right there that is the most important relationship in your entire life a right relationship with god your body the temple holy spirit number two your spouse is more important than any other earthly person in your life Number three, your children. Number four, your parents. You keep that kind of priority right, it will prepare you for the time when your children leave. You see, because God's been number one and your spouse has been number two in your life, therefore when children do begin to leave the home, you're not left with a shell of a marriage left because you've built that marriage together. That marriage only gets stronger. When you come to the time when you... You begin to take care of your elderly parents and you even realize they're passing together because you've been one in Christ Jesus. He helps you navigate those storms and those difficult times. They're going to come our way as our, as our parents get older in life. But if you put God first and your marriage second and your children third, this becomes a prescription for a healthy, fulfilling, marital life together. I want you to come back next week because I have a message that I want to bring to you, and it's, why are women so weird and men so strange? Please, please do not miss it. We're going we're gonna to do a study of Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to break down this whole head thing and uh, respect thing and the love thing and the respect thing, and we're going to work through all that together and find out, get, just really delve into how this whole marriage thing is designed by God to work. Musicians, musicians come on up. Uh, stand with me just stand this podcast has been a presentation of faith assembly where our mission is to connect people with christ and to experience life thank you for listening this week